Well, I was telling one of you, it's uh, it's been a lot. I hope it doesn't make light of it, but uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun being with you the last couple weeks. I've loved um, just going through Psalm 23 myself and uh, preaching to myself, but also um, uh, reflecting on it, meditating on it, and hopefully bringing the word of Christ uh, to you all. So I've been grateful for the opportunity, and um, thanks again for coming out. Uh, we're in Psalm 23. Uh, I'm going to read it for us. Why don't we stand out of honor and respect for the Word of God? And uh, I'm going to read that and uh, pray for us briefly, and then we'll, we'll jump in. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And as we prepare to meditate on God's word together, let's let's go to him in prayer. O oh Lord our God, your word is truth, and so we ask now that you would sanctify us in that truth together. So we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts might be pleasing in your sight. Uh, that they might renew us, that they might strengthen us for the journey, and that you would be pleased. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. So the last few weeks, we've, as you know, we've been looking at uh, one of the greatest poems in the biblical tradition, Psalm 23. And we've been exploring what Psalm 23 says to us right now in 2020. You know, it's, as I said, it's a, it's a poem that's often read at, at funerals. Uh, were memorized in Sunday school by little kids. But Psalm 23, I think, offers us incredible, amazing resources for how to courageously face life in any stage, in any circumstances. And today we're zeroing in on, I think, one of the most memorable uh, and I think most sort of confidence-generating, courage-generating verses in the Bible uh, where the poet says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. So what does Christianity and what does Psalm 23 uh, say particularly to our fears? What does it say to our limits, uh, to our, our frailty, to our finiteness, to the dark and lonely places, maybe even uh, the unbearably sad places of our life? Uh, what does it say to death itself? That's what I want to look at with you all today. And so first I want us to see the certainty of the shadow, the certainty of the shadow, and then second I want us to behold the comfort of the shepherd. So the certainty of the shadow, and then I want us to behold the comfort of the shepherd. Uh, Luc Ferry is a French philosopher. He's still alive. And a number of years ago he wrote a little book called A Brief History of Thought. And in it, Ferry, he's, you know, he's a philosopher, he says that the central question of his field, of philosophy, 
is uh, the central question of philosophy is our mortality, our finiteness. It's the it's try it's seeking to answer the question: What do you do with death? How do you deal with it? And that's not I don't think just the it's it's not just the primary concern of sort of armchair academics like Ferry, but I think all of us I think that's really one of the central questions you have to grapple with. Uh, what is so? What does Ferry mean about you know philosophy? The central question being our mortality. He's not primarily, I don't think, talking about m sort of morbidly dwelling on our own demise. Although I think that's a real thing. Uh, he's talking about the way in which life has kind of an irreversible quality to it. We're constantly driven into the past. I'm experiencing this now as a dad, where it's sort of I look at pictures of my kids who are actually quite young. I look at the, you know pictures of one, two, three years ago, and I get just this incredible wave of nostalgia and sort of, you know, regret that things are moving along at a rapid pace. I think those of you who are who who are parents can can resonate with that. Uh, we have these nostalgic longings for home. Uh, we this irreversible quality of things in the past of 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 guilt or remorse or regret over things that we've done, and Ferry, this philosopher, this French philosopher who's a you know really just a secular humanist, he says that in order to live well, that is to be capable of joy and generosity and love, we need to conquer those fears. Uh, and he says a lot of those fears come from unmet desires, longings that uh, that I think as human beings we all share. What are those? What are some of those longings? I think they're, one, he says, he says, to be understood, to be known, uh, to have people know us, uh, to be loved, not to be alone, not to be separated from those we love, not to die and have those who are close to us die on us. I think those are all longings that if we're honest with ourselves, that, that reaches something about sort of the core of who we are. Uh, the most good literature, most good books seek to wrestle with those yearnings. Uh, I came across an interview just a couple of uh, weeks ago um, from the, this pop singer uh, who I, I've not, not really listened to any of her music, Lana Del Rey, but maybe you've heard of her or listened to some of her music. She was interviewed by her, um, by her, I think, her manager. And she said, she they were talking about a, a variety of different things, but in the interview, uh, Lana Del Rey says, says this. She says, I subscribe to the idea that what's going on in the macrocosm of our country and, and city and nation and world, I, I subscribe to the idea that what's going on in the macrocosm, whether it be in the presidency or a virus that keeps us isolated, is a reflection of what's going on in the individual home and inside bedrooms and what people intimately talk about. I think there's been existential panic for a long time, but people haven't been, t been paying attention to it because they've been too busy buying shoes. She says, and shoes are cute. I love shoes. But now that you can't go shopping, you have to look at your partner and be like, I've lived with you for 20 years, but do I even know you? You realize maybe you've only ever allowed yourself to scratch the surface of yourself because if you went any deeper, you might have a mild meltdown for no reason, just out of the blue, and no amount of talking could explain why. I'm not trying to say I'm a holy roller because I'm not. But I think people are looking up to the sky a bit more and being like, why? What's the reason? That's profound. I mean, it's coming from like, you know, a pop artist. Um, but I think that's a profound 
reality that I think many of us are, are, are dealing with. And Psalm 23, let me suggest, says that there are answers to our unmet longings, to be understood and loved. But we have to, you, just as Ferry, Ferry suggests, you have to face your fears. You have to face the certainty of what I'm calling the shadow, what this poet says is the shadow of death. We have to see that hard places and hard people are inevitable to life. So let's look at that. Uh, Psalm 23 is not, as I've said before, it's not just about sort of warm fuzzies and easy living. It's about going through hard stuff. The shadows, the valleys that literally are death itself or things that feel like death, uh, depression, isolation, loneliness, uh, loss of job, betrayal, um, loss and other, just sort of a feeling of loss. The psalmist says there's at least one certainty you can bank on, whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, it's this, you will face hard things and hard places, grueling things, impossible things. As I said last week, something like over 70% of the poems in the Old Testament, the poems in the Bible are lament songs. They are songs of grief and mourning and sadness. And you know, I think there's, you've, you probably, some of you are familiar with it. There's a form of religion uh, that says that you, you shouldn't ever have to face hard things. There's something that even masquerades as Christianity that says our relationship with God should always be kind of happy clappy and uh, you should always have a smile on your face. There's even some that claim that the Bible teaches that God won't ever bring you into hard places, to painful places, to scary places. That somehow if you follow God, you'll always be led into green pastures. And usually those pastures are are uh, they're, they're described as, as financial security or physical well-being. And if you send $39.95 to the website below, you'll be blessed, right? That's 100% wrong. Psalm, what, do you want the proof for that? 100% wrong. The proof is Psalm 23, verse 4. God does lead us beside still waters. He does lead us in the right paths. And in verse 4, God, God's leading has not changed. He is still leading this poet. He's leading you and me through dark valleys. Look, the New Testament evidence is this. Jesus was a man of sorrows, the perfect human being, the perfectly righteous person, God in the flesh, and yet he was a man of sorrows. He walked through dark valleys. And if he did, and you are one of his followers, you will too. That's, that's, a, that's a reality that you can count on. Uh, you need to face that certainty. You should expect that as a regular part of the Christian life. Another certainty is this. There's a tendency, I think, to tell ourselves that if people were only educated enough, if we only get the right politicians into office, if only the government were able to control, have more control or less control, then maybe the valley of the shadow of suffering wouldn't happen. Maybe we could somehow eradicate bad things from happening. Again, Psalm 23 says, suffering, misery, the shadow is inevitable. And that's with God as your shepherd. That's with God um, controlling the universe as the ultimate king. So it, I think the reality is it doesn't matter how, how put together you are, how hard you work, how secure your plans are, 
how secure your resources are, something will sooner or later eventually ruin that. The life of a sheep, human life, is fragile and subject to forces beyond our understanding, beyond our ability to manage or control. And if you are a human being, you either are experiencing now, right now, or very soon will be facing a valley of deep darkness. Uh, that's that's one of the certainties of the shadow. But, you know, there's also, it, it might not just be hard places and circumstances. It might be people. Notice what the psalmist says in verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. There's kind of an interpersonal, relational uh, darkness as well. There's the reality that sometimes places are hard, circumstances are hard, but people can also be very difficult. The valley can sometimes be a challenging or impossible relationship. See, the enemy of, uh, of a sheep uh, could be hazardous terrain. Those are some of the things they might face in the valley, but it was also dangerous predators. Think about David's enemies, uh, King David, who wrote this poem. If you go back one psalm, the Psalm 22, you see that David there in Psalm 22 describes a season in his life where he was being viciously attacked by people. He kind of describes who are the enemies in his life. They were people who were mocking him, people who were ridiculing him, people who were excluding him. In fact, he describes them like wild animals, animals who would have been considered uh, predators to a sheep, raging bulls, ravening lions, rabid dogs. They were people who were actively engaged in destroying David's reputation and, dis and dismantling his life. And that may be, for you, part of the valley that you are in right now. Maybe it's a boss who's, who's demanding and harsh. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a child whose heart is cold to you or cold to Jesus. Maybe it's just a nagging sense of isolation. Maybe the reality is you don't have anyone who you feel like knows you. You feel alone, excluded. Well, Psalm 23, I think, speaks to that. It gives language to those relationships and those experiences. God's word speaks to you where you are. And it says this. It says, look, this is part of the journey. Friend, it's not the destination. Psalm 23 doesn't end in verse 4. There's verse 5 and verse 6. There's a, there's a table set for you. There's a home that God is leading you to. You may be experiencing this valley now, but there really is light at the end of the tunnel, as Frederick Buchner said at the reflection quote at the beginning of our worship service. Death is a reality. Uh, darkness is a reality. It's a great power, but light and life are stronger still. Uh, I try to I try to read a lot to my kids. I've got three kids. I read to the older two on a pretty pretty regular basis. And this week we actually started uh, the you know J.R.R. Tolkien's famous uh, book, The Hobbit. Some of you uh, fantasy nerds may be kind of familiar with that, but this it's the story of the adventures of this uh, little guy named Bilbo Baggins. And it's the quest of, of Bilbo and one of his companions, Thorin Oakenshield. And Thorin is this king who's lost his kingdom and he's trying to regain it from an evil dragon. And there's this line that I find that I love that, uh, that rings true for me. It occurs 
towards the end of the book where Bilbo and the dwarves are nearing the, the end of their journey, this lonely mountain where this evil dragon lives. And they've come into some contact with some villagers who help supply them with gear for their journey, but won't go along with them. And Tolkien says in this kind of throwaway line, he's, he writes this, he says, it was easier to believe in the dragon and less easy to believe in Thorin, the true king, in these wild parts. And I think that's true. That, that, just that line resonates with me. It's easier in the wild parts, it's easier to believe in the dragon. It's easier to believe that evil will triumph and less easy to believe in Jesus when you're in the dark valleys, when you're in the wild parts. And I think there's two common responses that people have in the dark valley. One is this. It's, it's, it's kind of the moralist's response. I can't believe this is happening to me. I, I, I deserve better than this. That's the moralist's response. But I think the second response is the respon- uh, in the valley is the response of the cynic that says, I knew this would happen to me. I knew sooner or later things were going to fall apart. My life was going to fall apart. But that's not how David responds, is it, in Psalm 23? He doesn't say, I can't believe this is happening to me. I deserve better. He also doesn't say, I knew this would happen to me. David isn't looking at himself. He's not focused on himself at all. Instead, he's looking at his shepherd. He's looking at the one who is guiding him, who is leading him. Friends, do you want to know the secret to living confidently, to living fearlessly and courageously? It's not to believe in yourself. It's not to focus on yourself. It's to behold the shepherd. It's to look at the shepherd. And so let's do that. Let's behold, I think, for the next few minutes, the shepherd and the comfort that he offers to you, his people, his sheep. You know, if you were to casually uh, read through the Psalms, beginning at Psalm 1, if you were to just start reading through Psalm 1 and kind of continue on through, you discover a lot of descriptions of God. In Psalm 2, you'd find out that God is a king. In Psalm 3, you'd find out that God is a shield. Uh, in Psalm 7, God is a refuge. Later on, God is described as a maker and a designer of things in Psalm 8. In Psalm 18, God's described as a rock. But then you get to Psalm 23 and something fascinating happens. You have a picture of God, as we've, as we've said, as you know, God is a shepherd. That is, David is describing the divine, the transcendent one, as both tough. Shepherds were extremely resilient. You had to be in the elements against marauders and wild animals. Uh, God is a shepherd who's tough, but he's also tender. He leads us beside still waters. It's an image of God that is both tough and tender. Someone who's overseeing a flock, but also focused on the individual sheep. So let's see who that shepherd is. He's both tough and tender, transcendent and personal. And I think there are three resources that David says this shepherd, three comforting resources that this shepherd offers you, he gives you. And those three resources are this. He offers you protection. He offers you presence. That is, he offers, he he promises to be with you. And then he offers you, at, at the end, he offers you a party. So let's look at those very briefly. Protection. Uh, one of the things that I've been saying the last few weeks is that we've lost the real context for Psalm 23. Uh, we've lost the weight of the shepherd imagery. We've sentimentalized it. We've, uh, When we think of shepherds, we think of 
uh, nativity scenes around Christmas with fluffy sheep or maybe a stained glass, blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jesus softly caressing a little lamb. But if you read other passages in the Bible that deal with shepherds, you discover that shepherds were often used to describe warrior kings, people of immense strength and might. It was used of military and political leaders, both in the Bible and outside of the Bible in the ancient Near East. So the shepherd was, uh, when, when you would call someone a shepherd or refer to a king as a shepherd, you were describing someone who was strong and tough, who governed justly, who punished evildoers and led his kingdom or his people to victory. And the first comforting resource that this warrior shepherd in Psalm 23 offers you is protection. That's indicated in verse 4 by the shepherd's rod and staff. Consider that. Sheep have no defenses. Um, they, they, they're weak. They're frail. They, defensively, they can't really outrun predators. But offensively, they've got nothing, right? They've got no claws. Uh, they've got no bite. The sheep's only security, the sheep's only source of protection is the shepherd. And a good shepherd is well-equipped to protect his sheep. That's what David is referring to with this rod and staff. And we could talk a lot, you know, there's commentators who, who go on and on about what the rod and staff are. And what is God's rod and staff? It's fascinating stuff. We don't have time. But there's one use that I want to draw your attention to. You know, the rod... Uh, this was this I was sort of researching it this week. The rod was often used by a shepherd to count sheep. So when a shepherd would call his sheep back into the sheep pen at the end of the day, what would happen is they they would hold out the rod, and the, the rod was used as a as a tool for counting the sheep. So a sheep would go under the rod, and that's that's the the tool that a shepherd would use to count the sheep. See a good shepherd knew exactly how many sheep he had and he knew each one individually so as they would come through he would be able to inspect them see if there was anything wrong and he would count them all he would know that there were a hundred sheep in my sheep pen Ezekiel 20 verse 37 an Old Testament prophet says that there would be a time when God would make his people pass under the rod and that he would bring them into the bond of his covenant, the bond of, of an everlasting relationship with them. That's, that's the Old Testament way of what Jesus says in John 10, I give my sheep, I give my people eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out from my hand. Friends, Christian, you have eternal protection. You have eternal security. You have, in, in, in a mysterious way, gone under the rod of this good shepherd. You've been counted by God. You are included by this shepherd. You belong to him. That means that there's nothing that can sever you from that relationship. Not even you. There's no valley, there's no sin, there's no power. Not even death itself can steal you away, can snatch you away from Jesus. You've got ultimate protection. But you also have God's presence. You also have God's 
presence. Notice the change in personal pronouns. I'm going to get a little grammatical on you, but notice the shift from verses 2 and 3, verses 1 through 3, into verse 4. The poet moves from talking about God, the Lord is my shepherd, he makes me lie down, he leads me beside still waters, to talking to God. It's a switch from he is with me to you are with me. You know, I've often found that in areas of my life that are hard, in areas where I feel like I'm experiencing suffering, or when I'm sitting across from somebody who is suffering, that person doesn't really want explanations. They don't really want answers. But they do want someone with them. That's often what I experience when I visited people in the hospital. They're not really looking for you to say the right thing or do the right thing. They're just happy that you're there. They're just happy that you're present with them. And David knows something about that truth. He knows the difference between talking about God in suffering and talking with God in suffering. And friends, Christianity says the difference between it and all other religions when it comes to the issue of suffering is the issue that is the, is the reality that God is is with us in our suffering. There's an Old Testament hint here to the the reality of the incarnation that God himself didn't just remain elusive or distant from our suffering, but no, he didn't remain removed from our suffering. He entered into it in the person of Jesus. It's not just that God is present with us, but that he himself Jesus of Nazareth, God in the flesh, has suffered. God himself in Jesus has already gone through the valley of the shadow of death, and so he is, friends, uniquely suited, uniquely equipped, not only to lead you through, to, but be with you every step of the way. I love the old hymn that says this, I will be with you, your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Friends, that's gospel truth you can stand on. That's unshakable. So friend, stand in it. Jesus is with you and he will never forsake you, ever. God offers you his, his, his protection, eternal security in the gospel. He offers you his presence in Jesus who became flesh to be with you, to walk with you, to experience suffering in the same way that you do. Uh, but it doesn't leave us there. He offers you, lastly, a party. And we're going to come back to this truth next week. There's a ton there. Uh, but I want to focus on that, that reality of the party. You know, all good stories end with a celebration. They end with a party, and Psalm 23 is no exception. But it has an interesting twist. Uh, we're going to focus this week in just a couple minutes here on the host of the party. Next week we'll focus a little bit more on the party itself, but we're going to focus on the host of the party. I've been saying that this poem is about, it's about a shepherd who's a warrior king. He's tough. He's strong. He offers you ultimate security and his powerful presence with you to guard and guide you. But in verse 5, we see that there's a feast. There's a table prepared. It's a party. And you know, in the ancient world, 
the master of the house, uh, the warrior king, the host, the host would be the one who would, he would provide the meal. He'd provide the meal, but he would send his servants to actually prepare the meal. The most famous example of that is if you're familiar with Luke 15 and the parable of the father with the two sons. Um, there was a father who, upon his son's return home, he orders a feast, he orders a celebration, but he sends his servants to prepare the meal. This was common in the ancient Near East. They knew that you know, if you were someone of status and you, you, uh, you threw a party, you wouldn't prepare the table. You would host the party, but you wouldn't be preparing the meal. You wouldn't be preparing uh, the cups. You wouldn't be serving the wine. So, but do you see now the interesting twist that Psalm 23 offers? It says, it says that God is a mighty shepherd, but he also, verse 5, prepares the table. He prepares the table. He's the sovereign shepherd. He's the sovereign Lord. But he also is the table servant. He's the one uh, worried about whether or not you have enough wine in your glass. Now, do you know why that's astounding? It's astounding because all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the pages of the Old Testament, God was showing his people time and again that there would be a shepherd who was royal and mighty and strong, who was out of the lineage of King David himself. Think of Micah 5, which we read commonly during the Advent season. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one is to, who is to be ruler of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. There, there, God is promising a shepherd king who is going to come with might and strength and valor and courage. Uh, someone who was strong. But elsewhere in the Old Testament, you read about the coming of a servant, a table waiter, someone who would come and who would be afflicted and oppressed, who would go through dark places on behalf of his people. Isaiah the prophet says this, that this servant would be like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearing is silent. Do you hear that? For centuries, God's people looked for a shepherd who would be a lamb, a great king who would also be a servant, someone who is tough and yet tender, strong and yet appearing to be weak. Does that sound like anyone that you know? anyone in the Bible, someone born in Bethlehem, descendant of David, the poet king, a leader who perfectly captured the toughness of a king and yet the tenderness of a servant. Friends, this is your Jesus. That's who Psalm 23 is pointing you to. The one who not only goes through death and out the other side in resurrection life, but who also prepares a table for you. Um, one of the books we recently finished uh, with, with, my, uh, with my son and daughter is, uh, I, I have to admit, I'm a huge fan of the Harry Potter series. I don't know where you, I don't know if you like it or dislike it, or, but I, I, like, I like it. I love reading it to my kids. And uh, we just finished Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. And in, in that book, uh, there's this chamber of secrets that Harry has to enter. And it's essentially his own valley of the shadow of death. And he has to face off against this massive basilisk, this huge snake that's 
uh, got these venomous fangs and who is bent on destroying Harry. And uh, in the in the in the book, um, he he's got no help. He's all alone. He feels all alone. And Dumbledore, the wizard, his 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 uh, his headmaster, provides him with a bird and a sorting hat. And if you if you know the sor- story, it's sort of he gets a bird and this sort of musty old dusty wizarding hat, and he has to sort of use these two items, or essentially they come to the rescue. And they don't look like much. Uh, Harry struggles because he's like, I don't know what these two things are actually going to do against this massive man-eating serpent. And I was thinking about that as I was uh, as I was reading Psalm 23 this week. That you know, you read st- stuff like a rod and a staff. They don't do much for me in 2020. What does a rod and staff do for me? Not much. But you know, we have something that David he he knew that there was a rod and staff, a shepherd that would guard him and protect him, who would walk with him. And he just was drawing on the experience of a shepherd. But friends, we have Jesus. David has a rod and a staff, but we have a cross and an empty tomb. And that might, that might not seem like much to you. It might sound like a, a, a bird and a musty old wizard hat given to you by Dumbledore. But friend, they're everything. The cross and the empty tomb, that's what we have. Christianity says the journey takes you through valleys, but in the midst of the darkness, there's God's protection. He's with you. He'll never forsake you. And on the other side of all of this, it's a resurrection party. It's a feast forever with the Lamb of God. That's an amazing resource. That's, that's hope for no matter where you are or what you're going through. That This is not the end. The party is the end. The party with the Lamb of God. The, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And that's what we're going we're gonna to partake in now. A taste of that. A foretaste of that. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for these incredible gifts that you've given to us. You've given us a covenant that is everlasting, a protection, a security, that there's nothing that can take us out of your hand. There's nothing that can take us away from you. Father, and you've given us not just the promise that you'll be with us, but you have come. You have come in Jesus and you have walked this path of life. You've walked through death itself and come out the other side so that you can guarantee to us that just as your tomb is empty to this day, we will rise to resurrection power and life one day with you. Father, that's an immense resource. That's an immense gift. May our hearts rejoice in it today and the rest of our life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.